everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. I am recording this a little later than I normally do because, like many of you, I am fully invested in March Madness, the college basketball tournament, or more likely you are uh, possibly, you love someone who is embroiled in March Madness and you're struggling to love them through it. That would probably put Caitlin in that category, but we're going to make it through and we're going to watch basketball and take care of our children and our families and stuff too. So, but I am excited to be talking today about the continuing of the giving of the law. And this is going to be focused on part of the sacrificial system. So it's going to actually come out of Leviticus one through four. Now, Leviticus is pretty famous, um, famous, infamous is maybe the correct term for being, I don't know how many times I've heard this. We may have heard this as well. Uh, somebody like a pastor is preaching about, you know, doing a devotional and they're like, well, you know, just starting at the beginning of the Bible and just trying to work your way through without any sort of plan can be tough. And you find yourself in some book of, called Leviticus and then you give up. I've heard that joke like a hundred times. And maybe that's just the consequences of going to seminary. But um, Leviticus is infamous for being a book that people struggle to understand, struggle to find the helpfulness of part of God's word, but does it really help me? And it does, I'll tell you. So I'll eliminate the suspense there. It is helpful for us. It's not the most specifically applicable book in the scripture, and I don't feel bad saying that. But um, they, there is a lot of theological richness and depth to, especially us seeing the end of this story and seeing how the sacrificial system comes to be completed in Christ. I think for us, it has a lot of just depth and richness that uh, the people who originally received the law didn't have the opportunity to see all the way through. So there's a really uh, unique and meaningful aspect for us being on being uh, new covenant believers uh, to look back on this system and see how um, it's just another example of how Christ was always plan A, uh, that Christ's coming was always in God's plans uh, to redeem his people. But uh, so we're, as we talk about these sacrifices, we're going to see there's some there's some good principles that we can learn from the sacrifices. These sacrifices were for a specific people at a specific time. So we need not worry about their direct application to us now. We don't need to take notes on exactly how these sacrifices were done, um, thinking that we have to replicate it. That is not our situation. But the probably the most important part, we'll talk about some other things too, but the most important part of the sacrificial system is that it points us to Jesus as that once for all sacrifice, that one that does not need to be redone uh, with regularity, but that creates peace between God and man through his uh, willing death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we will be in Leviticus 1 through 4. I'm not going to read a lot of specifics. I'll mostly just kind of give an overview, which I think will be more helpful um, if you want some of the, the details and things like that, you can always go and read that. Um, but we're basically going to be talking about two overarching types of sacrifices. So there's going to be the voluntary, and then there's going to be the mandatory. Okay, so basically, y'all know what those words mean. The difference is really both were expected. So neither of them was like truly like totally like, oh, whatever, who cares? Um, but the voluntary were without a specific reason. So that's more what I mean when I say voluntary. They didn't have a specific reason, except in some cases. Um, 
And that mostly means the specific reason being they were not in response to a violation of the law. So basically they weren't done in response to sin. They were done as just an, a normal practice of the worship of God. Um, so voluntary kind of in quotations. Um, they were still, you're supposed to do it, but it wasn't in response to a specific sin. So there are three categories of these uh, offerings, which are covered in uh, chapters one, two, and three of Leviticus, so chapter each for these. Um, so the first and probably the most important of these is the burnt offering. Okay, so it's described in Leviticus one. Uh, its purpose was to show honor to God, um, but it also was part of the uh, atoning sacrificial system. So atonement, definition, reconciliation between God and man needed as a result of sin. Okay, so that's what atonement is. Um, when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, our theological grid for that is penal substitutionary atonement. Say that 10 times fast, right? But this idea that he was our substitute for our guilt and that that brings then that reconciliation between God and man. So atonement, if you ever hear people about the atonement, it's usually referring to Christ. Atonement in general is this, in the Christian faith or the historic Jewish faith is this reconciliation between God and man. And it's needed because of our sin. So there's multiple passages in Leviticus uh, later on that actually are going to talk about the burnt offering in the same breath, basically, as atonement. So um, there's some other purposes to it, like I meant to, to honor God. Some would even say to kind of get God's attention, um, not as if he's like nodding off and you need to rouse him from his sleep or something like that, but just to uh, to show God that you are acting in obedience or possibly to petition God, um, almost as if a part of like prayer. Um, but mostly it's a, this act of worship to honor God, um, but also has these implications in atonement. So this was not only something that, like this wasn't necessarily new um, either to the ancient Near East. So that just kind of that whole area, um, Canaan and Egypt and um then where Israel will eventually settle down. It's not even, it's not even, I guess, abnormal in those areas, but it's also even God's people before this will sacrifice burnt offerings. So this is not the first time that burnt offerings are happening. Um, this is probably the first codification of the burnt offerings. So some examples of some of the patriarchs um, who also have burnt offerings. Noah uh, gave, did a burnt offering. I believe it's after he gets off the ark. Um, Abraham offers a burnt offering after uh, God uh, has asks him to sacrifice Isaac, stops him, and then he gives a burnt offering of that ram that gets caught in the thicket. Um, Job also we see in, I know Job's later in the Bible, Job, most scholars believe he probably existed in the time of the patriarchs here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacobs. Um, he would offer uh, burnt offerings on behalf of his kids just in case they sinned while they were drinking and partying together is if you remember the battle breakdown on that, that's pretty much what he's doing. It's a good dad right there. Um, and then even the Israelites in Egypt at one point when Moses is trying to um, at least get a concession from Pharaoh, he says, well, at least let us sacrifice burnt offerings to our God. And remember, this is before this whole Sinai experience that they're in the middle of now as Moses is receiving this law. So this is not brand new, uh, but instead is being codified and, and made probably more regular rather than sporadic. Um, so it was actually intended to be done daily. So if you ever wondered what the Israelites were doing in the desert, they spent a lot of time doing their burnt offerings and their other offerings that we're going to talk about. 
these things, I mean, if you read all the details of them, they would have taken some time, um, especially for the, uh, for the Levites who were actually conducting the sacrifices. Um, and they, so they would do them daily and often twice daily. They would doing, do them during all of the festival days, um, which we haven't gone over all the festivals, but there's a lot of festivals. Um, God likes his people to celebrate. I hope we have a, I hope we have a lesson about that soon. That's important for us to realize, but there's a lot of festivals in the Jewish calendar. Um, and so it was pretty much all of those they had burnt offerings as a part of, excluding the Day of Atonement. And that's actually where the mandatory uh, sacrifice that we're going to talk about later is going to be most prominent. So it's not, again, it's not to say that the burnt offering has nothing to do with atonement, but rather this, uh, it's going to, I'll tell you, you're about to know anyway, this sin offering is just most prominent that day. And that's the one that is specifically in response to violation of the law. So um, some would actually argue some, Scholars would argue this is actually the most important of the sacrifices. Um, a few reasons are uh, it comes first in the list, so it's Leviticus 1. Another would be this the frequency importance and importance in the festivals like we just talked about. Um, and then this in this offering, the entire offering uh, is consumed and no portion is eaten. So that shows this kind of uh, symbolism that all of this offering is meant to go to God, that none of this is for me, it's all to uh, sacrifice what God has given me um, to show honor and to worship God. So there's some uh, significance in that as well. Um, and then you, there's also this portion, if you read through chapter one, it's kind of this uh, graduated sacrificial system, kind of like a progressive tax. Um, basically, the more you have, the more is expected. Um, you can think of it like a tithe also. 10% of different amounts of money is obviously a different amount. So there's kind of this graduated system. So you've got herd, which is probably for the most wealthy, the people with the most um, to give. Then there's the flock, which would be like your your sheep and your lambs. Uh, and then there's fowl, so birds. Um, and so it's basically this idea that you have an opportunity to give these offerings, even if you don't actually have very many cattle or any cattle. Um, and you can still provide for your family. So there's a sacrifice, there's something that is required of us when we worship God, but um, it's not to the point of being impoverished. Um, and you have to think that most probably didn't have enough livestock to be daily offering from a herd or from a flock. So the idea that uh, birds could also be a part of it. Also me being allergic to many birds that would not bother me if there were less of them around either. So I applaud this part of the sacrificial system and all of it. Nice try. You're not going to catch me. Not going to catch me napping. Okay. But the birds, yeah, they can go. I'm not, I'm okay with that. So the second type of offering is the grain offering that's described in Leviticus 2. Its purpose is a recognition that God provides for people through the land. And it's this return of the first fruits of the harvest. Um, so again, it's not unlike tithing in that you kind of return these first fruits. Um, we see this as early as uh, Genesis 4. Um, you'll remember the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is actually the one who um, is the farmer and gives his offering, but doesn't give doesn't give the good stuff, doesn't give of the first fruits. Um, and God is uh, unhappy with his sacrifice based on that. And Cain is so upset that he kills his brother. So there you go. There's an 
instance really early on of like we talked about the burnt offering with Noah, even before that, there's this idea of the giving of these offerings. So this would, this grain offering would often be done in conjunction with the burnt offering. Um, so, um, and the next one we're going to talk about too, as well, they would often all be done at the same time. So you're not making three separate trips necessarily as much as you're doing all these different types of offerings um, while you are going to the, uh, the place of worship. And so there's multiple ways for the grain offering to be done, but there were, uh, and you can, again, that's one of those things you can read through if you want the specifics, but there were some important thing kind of threads throughout all of it. So one was the use of oil, um, the use of incense um, to create a pleasing aroma before the Lord, and then also the use of salt. So the salt um, usually has a significance in scripture. You, um, you may remember on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus um, talks about if salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty, salty again? We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. Um, so salt is a, a few things. Um, one, it is a sign of the covenant. And we actually see that God specifically says that um, here as he's, when he talks about the salt being a part of the offerings, he's going to say that um, it's a sign of the covenant. I can't remember if that was something I read in a commentary from another book like Numbers or if it was there in Leviticus, um, but it's either in Numbers or Leviticus, I can't remember, but it's the sign of the covenant. Not only that, but it's also a preservative. So it's a, a symbol of how these um, how these offerings, how God um, is a preserves the people. Again, it's in uh, part of that covenant that God preserves and then also flavor. Um, salt, of course, we know that's our primary purpose for it today is to add flavor. So this this idea of the uh, richness and the uh, the goodness that comes with a, a covenant with God. So salt, very significant in all of scripture. And here in this sacrifice, um, it's added. And that's it as a sign of the covenant that we have between that the people have between them and God. Um, so in other rules they had were not to use leaven or honey. Um, unleavened bread is, uh, again, a concept that is pretty common uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially um, this idea that leaven is almost this idea for evil or sinfulness or idolatry. Um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Jesus is going to say. Um, he's going to refer to the Pharisees as leaven, which is not nice um, unless it's true, which it was. So not to use leaven and then honey as well. So apparently these were common in pagan practice. So this is one of those instances in which Israel was able to set up, be set apart and be different. So that's one of the big reasons. And then part of this offering was for the priest. So um, the sacrificial system was also set up so that these sacrifices could feed um, God's priesthood. So there you go. Unlike the burnt offering in which everything is burnt up. Um, so the third of these, again, voluntary in quotation marks, not totally voluntary, expected, but not in response to a specific sin. We had the peace or the fellowship offering. So this purpose was a celebration of the peace and fellowship between God and man as a result of God's forgiveness. Okay, so um, you'll usually hear it called a peace offering, peace offering or a fellowship offering, kind of depending on the version that you're reading, um, but they're the same. Um, so it was required during the Feast of Weeks, which is one of, again, the many feasts and festivals of the Jewish calendar. It was also as a part of the Nazarite vow was this offering. And of course, most of us know the Nazarite vow, if we'd know it at all from Samson, who 
had taken the Nazarite vow as a child and did a terrible job of keeping it. Um, and then also it was, again, like the grain offering, often in conjunction with the burnt offering. So it's your one-stop shop. You go you go that day, you go and get your burnt offering, you get your grain offering, you get your peace offering, and you do them all at the same time. Um, so this could be, again, um, there's kind of a and some options here. You can It could be something from the herd, something for the flock, or for the first time in Leviticus, goats are also welcome here. Um, the biggest things for all of these, and this is again, very common is that the, they be unblemished. Um, so any, uh, animal that you're sacrificing to God is not meant to be your weakling. It's not meant to be your one, um, even with like spotted or anything like that, but it's supposed to be unblemished. Um, and then the part of the animal that was burned was the fat. So that is considered the most choice part of the offering, the part with the flavor. So that was the part that was to be burned. And then the offerer would also was allowed to eat of this sacrifice. So the fat would go to uh, to God effectively. So it would be burned. And then um, the meat that was left over could be eaten by the person that was offering. Um, we, we see this thing with the fat kind of come up in a uh, later on in, I believe it's in 1 Samuel, um, when a wicked priesthood, they were like using this pronged fork to like get the fat out of the offerings. Um, and that was a no, no, because they were taking what was supposed to be for God and they were using it for themselves. And that was one of the many things that they were, uh, doing wickedly in the priesthood, but that's a, a again, common, we're going to see that come up again with the sin offering is this idea that the fat is the flavor. It's the good part. Um, and that part is for God. And also you have to think just taking a very, practical view, um, giving the people the lean meat to eat is, you know, probably better for their overall health. So there you go. All right. So those are the three voluntary, in quotes, not in regard to specific sin offerings. And now we're going to move to the mandatory required in response to something specific, sin offering. Okay. So the burnt, the grain, the peace or fellowship offering all were expected as a part of kind of normal worship. This sin offering is in in response to specifically to sins. Okay. So, and the purpose of the sin offering was, is atonement for sin. So that was the purpose of this. Um, it was required in that it was required for the atonement of sin. Okay. So you didn't necessarily, I guess it, you wouldn't say you had to do this offering, but if you were planning to be a part of God's believing community, then it was required of you if you wanted to have that atonement of sin. Um, so others were required as part of the festivals. The sin offering is the only one that's required in response to sin, as I as I mentioned. So um, there in chapter three, this is in, or I'm sorry, this is Leviticus four. Um, again, what kind of one per chapter, and this will spill over also into chapter five. Um, but it has different nuances for the sins of the high priest, sins of the whole congregation, sins of leaders of the people, sins of just the normal everyday Israelite. Um, and the common threads that go through this, again, the burning of the fat. So the fat, fatty parts of the animal would be taken off. And that would be um, part that was part of what was burned as part of the sacrifice. And then this one also had um, blood was put, the blood of the animal was put on the altar. So kind of that, again, that symbolism that um, sin uh, has a penalty, sin has consequences and that penalty, that consequence is death. So the blood, especially in the sin offering, is a reminder of that. And so another kind of confusing thing that is in this chapter, this is for 
quote unquote inadvertent sins. Okay, so if you read that, you're like, what does that mean? If you like trip and fall and on your way down, you accidentally grab somebody's purse and steal their money or something like that. Uh, unintentional is another word that's used, I think, in the ESV. Um, so it can be a little bit confusing um, what that means, but basically we're dividing sin into two categories. We've got your inadvertent or unintentional sins, and I'm putting both those words in quotes. Um, and then on the other side, we have high-handed sins, which I guess also is going to go in quotes. A lot of these things need explanation. So the it'll help to understand the inadvertent or um, unintentional sins if we understand the sins with a high hand. So high-handed sins are sins that are done in purposeful rebellion against God and his anointed. So we get actually a couple of instances. We actually get one right after this in... Um, uh, there's a story about the high, or there's a part in numbers about the high-handed sin. And then there's a part about Sabbath breaking, which is one of those high-handed sins. Um, basically the rebellion against God's covenant to keep the Sabbath and for that to be a day holy to him. Right after that, there's uh, the story of Korah's rebellion in which Korah and his folks are basically like, why does Moses get to be in charge? And then they get swallowed by the earth. It's a pretty interesting story. And then another thing that would go here would be idol worship. So obviously, again, you don't accidentally choose to worship idols. You don't say, oh, no, I, I follow God, but I'm over here worshiping these idols and doing all these things, too. So they're basically it's purposeful rebellion uh, against God and his anointed. So those are the high handed sins. So these sacrifices, there's actually no sacrifice, no um, offer, offering of forgiveness for these in the Old Testament, which could be a whole other topic on itself. But so that is basically everything else but those kind of sins is what would be considered unintentional or inadvertent. Basically the ones that sins that are, come from our human frailty. So just the fact that we are sinful. So it's not just like, yeah, like I described, you'd accidentally trip and steal somebody's money out of their purse. Like even things like, um, you know, if you were to um, steal even on purpose, um, that if it weren't in a place of you know, say maybe stealing from the temple or something like that, um, That would that's considered inadvertent or basically rooted in human weakness. Okay, so just the fact that we are sinful beings. Um, it's kind of a hard line for us to understand. It's kind of a hard line for me to understand. Um, but this is how basically, I guess God's like, you know, I just kind of understand that y'all are going to mess up. And so even if you sin on purpose, if it's not this purposeful act of rebellion against me or my anointed, then there's sin offering for it. So just kind of thinking like your normal, like your normal things that people would do to mess up, to treat one another unkindly, to maybe even steal or to dishonor one's parents, things like that. Those would all would all go in there. Um, so even uh, acts of like uh, unintentional manslaughter would go in this um, category as well. So. There you go. So that's what the purpose of these sin offerings were, these inadvertent or unintentional sins. Um, there was this specific way to go about it, depending on your place in the society, basically. Okay, so that is pretty much all of the sacrifices in this section. So, of course, the thing we have to ask ourselves when we read about something that, because uh, none of us are doing burnt offerings or peace offerings or grain offerings or sin offerings. So the question kind of comes up, the so what? So yeah, I know, understand that these exist, but what's 
the purpose. So while we don't obey the sacrificial system, like I said, it's for a specific group of people at a specific time. It is a reminder of a few things. So one is God's holiness. Another is our sinfulness. And third is Christ's sacrifice. So these things are done and they're done in a certain way and they're done with certain animals. Um, and it's all very ordered and purposeful because uh, we serve a holy God and sin has consequences. And for sin to be forgiven, there those consequences must be met. Um, those requirements must be met. And it's because we serve a holy God. So remember holy being that God is totally distinct from us. He is nothing like us. We are nothing like him in that uh, he is so far above us. We are created in his image, which is why humans are special. Um, but the way that we have acted out of his image versus who he actually is, totally different, incomparable. Okay. So that's what we say when God is holy. It's that he is um, just totally distinct from who we are in terms of his, in terms of his value. He is the only one in the universe worthy of worship. Um, he is also morally perfect, um, but that, that's not all that holiness means. It's it's far above that. So I think sac the sacrificial system, too, um, can be a reminder um, because we're like, oh, man, like a lot of animals have to pay the price for our sin. And that seems kind of brutal. And man, they got to do these sacrifices every time they sin. And that seems really taxing. I think the root of that really is that we don't take sin as seriously as we should as it relates to who we are in relation to God. It seems almost excessive or over the top sometimes because we struggle to take sin seriously. And I don't mean like, oh, we don't go and um, parade around the world our morals and wag our fingers at people um, when they do something wrong. That's not really what I mean. I, I mean that we don't see sin as as big a problem as it really is that's really what all this is rooted in when we don't fully understand the need it's because we don't fully understand sin so things are done this way to give god the honor he's due to give him his rightful place and it's a reminder of how far above us god is and how even in the midst of that he chooses relationship with us. He chooses grace for us and he's faithful to us even in the midst of that. Uh, and these things are required because of our sin. If we were sinless, we wouldn't need sacrifices. If there wasn't uh, a sin that is by nature and by choice, we would not need any sort of sacrifice, um, let alone uh, daily sacrifices or sacrifices at all these festivals. Um, this system should remind us God is holy and that we are sinful and that it's because of our sinfulness that these things um, had to be codified into law is because of our sinfulness. And God gave the people a way to continue to have his presence, his holy presence in which sin um, is not accepted um, still in the middle of their camp. So this is really a way of creating fellowship um, between God and man is through these sacrifices. So, and then finally, as it most relates to us, no, I won't say that. Those other things relate to us plenty. Just we don't use the same system, um, but we do serve a holy God and we are still sinful, right? But finally, though this is most important because it has to do with Jesus, um, Jesus is the substance of these offerings. These offerings, the sacrificial system we see in the New Testament are a shadow 
and that Jesus himself, his sacrifice is the substance. So we see that in a couple of different places. Um, one place that we see it is in Colossians 2. Paul is going to be talking to the Colossians saying, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, so he's kind of referring to people who um, were wanting the people to go back to following the um, the Old Testament law in some way, shape, or form. It was kind of the syncretistic between like this um, kind of different Greek ideology and then um, this Old Testament system, kind of this syncretism of those two things that they were trying to convince people was necessary to follow Christ. And he's basically like, don't let anybody bring up the this law and say that your value is based on that because those things were pointing to Christ and Christ is here. Um, and then we see also, we see the same sentiment by the author of Hebrews. And this is a passage I've quoted many times in the Bible breakdown, because anytime the sacrificial system comes up, I think this is one of the most important passages. Hebrews 10, one through four says, for the, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the truth that we see in this passage in Hebrews is this idea that this sacrificial system never had the power to take away sin. So it provided atonement for sin, but if they had to be continually sacrificed because they could never take away sins. But we as New Testament believers, we have the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect lamb of God, the sinless one who came, who lived on earth as fully God, fully man, lived a life, went through the challenges and difficulties that we go through, but did so without sin and willingly died on the cross on behalf of the sins that we had committed. Three days later, rose from the dead and through faith in what he's done, we can have eternal life. We can have the Holy Spirit, which actually gives a way for sin to be taken away. This ability for us to choose righteousness, goodness provided by the Holy Spirit. So when we think about the sacrificial system, all that was required, all the sacrifices that had to be made for hundreds and thousands of years, it points us to a sacrifice that was once, not just for one person, but once for all the most perfect sacrifice. And so it leads us to hopefully a place of, again, our, a recognition of God's holiness, a recognition of our sin, but an, also an opportunity to worship and praise Christ for what he's done on our behalf by being that sacrifice that could take away sins and offering us an opportunity for fellowship with God, not just now, but also into eternity. 